This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Driving Outcomes, your source for inspired solutions to address the most pressing leadership concerns of today. On each episode, we examine the latest developments in applied research and education and how it impacts your business and social outcomes. Our host, Tracy Shirachi, brings you conversations with groundbreaking researchers, educators, and business leaders who are changing the face of leadership every day. And now, here's Tracy. Hi, everyone. I have the opportunity to interview Wendy Schluchter, who is at the University of New Orleans. And she's a Eurofins professor of molecular biology in the Department of Biosciences. And Wendy, just before we get started, I wanted to ask you about your background. I know we're on a podcast, so it's difficult for individuals to physically see it because they're otherwise listening. But just for those that are listening, Wendy has a picture in the background of a really colorful house with decorations of birds and flowers that are in purple and uh, magenta and pink, and it's just really dynamic and really colorful. So just wanted to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, obviously with COVID-19 pandemic, um, the 2021 Mardi Gras season, um, the, the parades have all been canceled, um, but New Orleanians are never people that you can keep down. And so creatively, uh, our city has come up with the idea, we still wanna employ artists, and so uh, the mayor and others came up with this idea of decorating your homes by uh, paying artists to come and do what they would normally do on floats to your homes. And they call it Yardy Gras instead of Mardi Gras. <laughs> and it's fantastic. Oh, I encourage everybody to go online and look at some of these homes. It's, it's amazing. And now are so, people posting it on Instagram or mm -hmm. people can just Google it and, and, and instead of Mardi Gras coming up for this season, it'll be the Yardy Gras? Uh-huh. Yep. I think that's phenomenal because that's one, like you said, I think it's survival, but adaptation, but also innovation <laughs> at its best, because yeah. um, I think that's the benefit of this pandemic. Sometimes we focus so much on the bad stuff that we haven't focused on the resilience of human beings to really adapt. And I think you just highlighted a very like poignant social um, aspect of it where individuals can still appreciate culture and the social aspect of it, but there's an adaptation to it. Yeah. Now, how is tourism being affected? Um, obviously, because a lot of individuals would travel to uh, Mardi Gras and, you know, experience that in New Orleans. So is that having a, unfortunately, a, a huge impact on yep. just like all other cities right now, we're really facing a downturn. And it's really the hospitality sector um, is a big part of our economy. So there's a lot of people, you know, in the bar and restaurant uh, and hotel industries that are, and, and tourism that are really just struggling a, a lot. And so, um, but a, a big part of re the reason why people come to New Orleans is because of our um, sort of unique culture. And so that's one thing I think we really have to nurture. And that's why this program was so awesome to try to keep our artists um, you know, employed as much as possible and just appreciate what they do. Well, and I think the largest part that you're highlighting is community. Like community has to come together and that's not just only the local community, but also the global community, the national community. What, community can be different sizes and different 
demographics, but I think community is essential because the only way that all of us will survive is when we all come together through that. So I think it's great that, like you said, supporting the artists, because I think oftentimes we think, okay, travel industry, hospitality, restaurant industry, but really it's more, it's deeper than that. And it's broader than that. And that includes our arts, like museums. I don't know. Um, I know I was talking to a client in New York and they mentioned like the Met and such, they're able to like make reservations and still go. Whereas for a long time here in California, museums have been closed the entire time. So you could not, you cannot, I think we just lifted the stay at home order yesterday and I haven't looked to see whether or not that includes museums, but the arts in and of itself have been closed the entire time since March. I don't know what it's like in New Orleans or Louisiana as a whole, like whether or not you guys could go to museums or not or appreciate arts in general. I think depends on what phase we were in. You know, we were doing pretty well until Thanksgiving. And then <laughs> yeah, I think everyone was doing well until yeah. like Thanksgiving, the holiday season, right? Where people yeah. needed, felt a need to, and I think all of us can relate, right? That a need to see and, and interact and touch family. And the unfortunate consequence of that is, you know, the yeah. increase in the numbers, but yeah the human aspect of it is completely understandable too. And it's yeah. kind of this like give and take in its worst form in terms of like what happened. Yeah. yeah. And so how has um, the university like responded to it or how have students responded in terms of, are they virtually taking classes at home or are they on campus or how, right. what is the, you know, how have the students reacted to it as well as the staff and the faculty in terms of adapting to um, what's been presented in front of all of us, right? Right. So uh, New- University of New Orleans is a very diverse population, mostly, um, I mean, we do have an on-campus student population, but I would say the majority of our students commute from the, the local urban area. So I don't think it had as much an effect um, on them you know, because many of them were at home anyway. But I think the main thing is most of our classes, if um, are online, uh, the way we decided to do it was, and it was took a long time for us to come up with this. Um, unlike a lot of universities, the administration was very, con- I don't wanna say other universities weren't concerned, but our administration was concerned to protect faculty and students. Um, So they basically said, you know, the only classes that can take place fully face-to-face are small classes, 10 students or less, where you can really spread out. We can have hybrid classes between 10 and 30. Um, And so that's really what a lot of our labs, science labs are doing, is doing hybrid instruction, where you basically have half half the lab show up at once and you can distance. Because you kind of need to, like, especially in a lab work, I mean, I know my roommates back in college were um, bioscience majors. So like they would have constantly have lab work. You have yeah. to have the tangible, like yeah. physical, like learning. You, it can't just yeah. only be lectures. Right. And there's just some skills that you learn. I'm, I teach microbiology. And so it's, um, you know, you, you, you can watch a video about, you know, transferring a culture and, and, and doing a gram stain, but, you really have to learn how to do it to get better at it. And so we 
we felt very strongly that we wanted to have that hands-on component, but do it safely. So most of our labs um, are hybrid. Um, there are some online only where that was possible to do. Um, and then all of our larger classes, you know, more than 30 students are all online. And so uh, either synchronous or asynchronous. Um, and so, you know, the students, I gotta say, they understand where why we're doing it. They don't love it. <laughs> yeah, no um, one loves it. No they don't one love it. to change it. And they're like, why do we have to do that? I mean, everybody, just human nature, yeah. all of us are like, why, what? Right. But like, we'll all adapt some, right. somehow, some way, right? right. And so the, the students that I mentor in some of the programs that I run, you know, some of them did great. Um, most of them did okay. Uh, there's a few that really struggled. And I think the students that have some underlying depression, anxiety, ADHD, all of those things really were exacerbated by this online environment and just the isolating nature of it. And so it's been a real challenge to try to make sure that students are okay. I mean, I really felt like a lot of my job was just to make sure, not just transmitting information, but really to check on students, mm -hmm. kind of see how they're doing. Like their well-being and oh, their, yes. like their mental health capacity. Is that also the same for like their families, do you feel like too, in terms of were there yes. constraints on resources, yes. access to internet, for instance, that may or may not um, yes. have been? That was a big problem in the spring when we suddenly went online, where a lot of students hadn't really, you know, they, they, they just didn't have the bandwidth at the home or whatever it was, and they couldn't really plan ahead to do that. So yeah, it, we're, I think we were in better shape in the fall because we had we could plan for it more. We knew it was coming, but yeah, that was really rough on students. And um, you know, how do you think it will impact things for next fall? Like, do you feel like um, you guys will kind of continue this hybrid model? Because it's one question I've always had for a lot of the universities is now that they've made this kind of shift, right? And people have adapted human behavior has adapted to a new way of doing something. Right. It's not like we're just going to hit a switch and everyone's just going to go back to like right. normal. I mean, don't get me wrong. People are going to want the interactions at some point. They're going to want to interact as human beings and go into the labs and see their classmates, see their professors being able to, but there's also like a mental shift that also has to occur, which is people have already physically changed to, um, adapt to currently what's going on. They're not automatically just going to re re embrace everything of the past. And especially when time has gone on for a while, that's right. one thing I think we forget is we are actually approaching a year yeah. um, since essentially like March, if you were to consider that being like the broader national kind of D day of where things really shifted. Um, people aren't going to just jump and just all of a sudden like run to the classroom or, you know, run places just because let's just say we could open things up and let's say we have everyone vaccinated and whatever, maybe. I think, I honestly think there will be, there will be more online offerings after this. Um, I think even though the majority of students don't necessarily um, love it, they like the convenience of it. And so I think, and faculty, I think have realized that they they can they can you know teach in a way that they do uh, connect with students, um, and so I don't see that everything not, not all our offerings will be online, but I think there will be a higher percentage that will be online. 
yeah, even, if point, we're, even, if we're, even if we're in a good place with the pandemic. Yeah, that makes sense because like you said, we've shifted, we've actually in as inevitably shifted education and how it's being delivered mm -hmm. by nature of having to adapt. So, and there's some benefits to that that people I think will still appreciate and want. And so, but at the same time, like you said, want the in-person. So I could very easily see that within the industry as a whole, like in terms of education is being right. more of that hybrid, um, which will be interesting to see like how that, like does that evolve over time to eventually evolve to 100% or where does that really go, right, right. as we emerge? But I think, I, I think sciences have been, have been slower than other disciplines too because of the hands-on component. And because, you know, we, um, you know, like medical, a lot of our students are pre-meds and medical schools don't want online courses for their students. They don't want online degrees as much as possible. So there's been this, you know, kind of resistance to do more online. We've, we've done things for non-majors and stuff because they prefer the online. But, um, but now I think we can see that there's some classes that are actually quite, able to to make that leap into the online and now that we've sort of all had to learn and become experts at it <laughs> um you know that that barrier is is down and so i i can see faculty wanting to do this maybe a semester where they can see that they're going to have a lot of travel they could still teach you know they could still hold office hours um but yet go do field work mm -hmm. you know in in a remote area um and still fulfill all their obligations and do research and teaching. So I was just going to ask you, like, what fields or professions do most of the students go into? Like you mentioned the medical field, but mm -hmm. what other um, professions do they evolve into as they leave the university? Just for reference of the audience to kind of um, connect more in terms of where molecular biology is impactful in our day-to-day -day lives. Right. So, yeah, there's a huge number that want to be um, physicians or something in the healthcare industry. So the big, uh, there's been a, a, a kind of a shift where th there's a lot more students going into physician assistants. It's sort of an intermediate yeah. career um, where they can still see patients, but that only requires two years of a medical school instead of four. Um, and so that's a big, uh, big point of emphasis. A lot of allied health majors, you know, physical therapy, dentistry, all of that kind of stuff that, you know, those are lucrative careers that students mm -hmm. understand, but they don't really understand necessarily is research. <laughs> yeah. And that's something I try to get them involved in um, the hands on component um, that they can do a career in that if they want to. Um, and so and we have a lot of students that uh, also go uh, and get the research experience, but then go into like more government like uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, uh, you can work for the EPA, you can work for all huh. kinds of agencies like that. So research could also be not only government, but would it also be like, would right. individuals go to work for like research and pharmaceutical companies yes. or yes. Um, biotech companies? Yes. Um, I know a friend of mine, like her husband is a, he actually creates the food flavors and the additives for um, mm -hmm. some of our you know, major food brands. And I, and, you know, when I stepped back and I thought about it, I was like, Hmm, that does involve like chemistry or biology or, you know, but I wouldn't necessarily relate it to when I'm eating at the dinner table per se, but it is true. Like yeah. um, there's additives and things in certain foods where. Well, just, you, you know, you, you have people, uh, manufacturers that make food. For example, we have a Folgers, I think it's Folgers 
coffee plant, you know, where they manufacture coffee and roast the beans. Um, but you have all kinds of testing that has to take place in those things, you know, which requires lab skills. Um, and we have a lot of, in Louisiana, we have a lot of oil and gas industry okay. jobs, chemical industry jobs. So those are potentially jobs that students could be employed in the private sector. Now, are there partnerships between those industries in New Orleans or Louisiana that are also working with the school to kind of not only provide, you know, internships, but also um, support what the education curriculum or the program also right. directly? There are some. There are some. I would say our chemistry department has done a pretty good job with some of those. Um, we occasionally get them. We probably need to do a better job to, re to reach out because... Um, students can earn credits and in internships, um, and so it's a it's a win win for the for the um, the private sector and the the student um, because the, the private sector gets to sort of do a long interview mm -hmm. with the student. Well, <laughs> and, and I think them. there's a and there's a benefit there that I think some oftentimes private sector doesn't acknowledge is that they could utilize a lot of like innovative thinking from the next generation. I know I worked with a bunch of students, you know, with one of the local universities here in the entrepreneurship um, center. And I was just amazed at their knowledge. And but it makes sense of like new apps and new ways of doing things and new companies of which those of us in the private sector that are working aren't necessarily studying up on or well versed in the latest and greatest. And so mm -hmm. definitely, I think there's a greater partnership for that, but also you know, as we're all evolving, partnership and community and collaboration becomes more significant right now. And so if private industry understands what, you know, fields students are interested in or where they're gravitating towards, um, I think that's helpful to the university. And something you said earlier, I know where you say like a lot, it will likely be that half of the education will be online and half in person. There's a whole evolution of telemedicine that's going on, yes. right? And so like Teladoc, for instance, as a company has done, has been doing really well by nature of their, um, one of the, you know, one of the companies that had kind of pursued this early on before the pandemic, right? right. But we're seeing this emergence of um, interactions where individuals are now trying to diagnose or understand and solve and help um, virtually versus necessarily having to go to the ER room. And I mean, there's always pros and cons to that, right? Like it's hard. Yes. Like my daughter just went to the ER room last week, unfortunately, and she cut herself. She's one years mm -hmm. old. It would be hard to like diagnose that on a zoom to see her finger. Yes. And, but if it's, if it's what's necessary, right. Cause right. I know, um, friends of ours that have talked about like rural areas, if you're in a rural area, whether or not it's in the U.S. or in another country, it doesn't matter if you're in a rural area and it takes, you know, an hour to get to an emergency room. What's your alternative in terms right. of um, helping or saving a life, right? Sometimes you have to use um, virtual telemedicine. Yeah. So right. that'll be interesting to see how that consistently evolves, because I think to your point, even though the medical field or the science field may be sort of evolve from a virtual aspect, I think it's still affected by human behavior and interest. Yeah. So preparing, I think the students for that will be interesting. At least I would be interested to see and hear, you know, years from now, how that adaptation is made in their careers, because if they got that exposure and more comfortability of virtual education, then let's just say they go work for someone like Teladoc, 
Right. It's almost second nature to them. It's not as much of a, right. wait a minute, how do I diagnose or how do I engage virtually? Right. We have a healthcare management uh, a degree at UNO and uh, we're actually trying to get a new mate, a new minor in um, digital health because of this okay. massive expansion into the online environment and the, you know, the, um, the healthcare um, where you have your records are online. Mm -hmm. There's just a huge data data set that hospitals sort of acquire and they need specialists that understand it mm -hmm. and can help communicate when there's problems with the physician, when there's, you know, so you need these people that are sort of intermediates between physicians, between um, people that are getting the bills and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so we see the need. And, and so we're trying to develop this minor, which um, means that somebody needs to understand a little bit about, you know, the biology of the human body <laughs> and coding and the medical aspect there. Um, but then the insurance part and then the, the sort of the programming part, really. Well, and I think what you're highlighting is this multidisciplinary approach in higher education is acknowledging like an industry. It's almost like you can't just only be a doctor. You have to understand business. You have to understand administration. You have to understand technology. You have to understand. So it's you've become this uh, generalist, not just a specialist. And it it definitely puts a lot more pressure, I think, on individuals because it's not just they went to school to be a doctor, just understand the body and just work with patients. Now it's broader than that, right? Yep. Um, which it's almost like you can't know enough of anything and everything because you're constantly learning. But I think it's also what I'm finding in industry is it's almost like this mindset of just as long as you're cons consistently open to learning, um, you'll be fine versus if you think you're done um, you're like sadly mistaken or you're surprised because there's something else you don't know right. that's constantly yeah. moving or changing or evolving. Um, so I joke because, you know, my, I talk to my father oftentimes and he's retired, he's in his seventies. Um, and he said, you know, for him, he's glad he retired because he doesn't have to continue to learn as much <laughs> as he did before. And this is coming from a man who, um, is a bioengineer and a mechanical engineer and a PhD. And so when he says he's glad he doesn't have to learn as much, it's kind of funny because clearly he's, he's learned a lot. Oh yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> but I think it's like, it's almost like anticipating the next wave of education. Where do, where do, what do schools do? Because it is the rate at which things are changing and moving is so quick. So in terms of like discussions at the faculty level, the administrative level or the educational level, like does that mean that more collaboration and interdisciplinary approaches to things are ongoing? Um, so you may not necessarily just only work with the biology department or colleagues in biology, but you'll work with, let's say, individuals in the social sciences or right. engineering or other areas. Yeah, I think the other thing, it, yes, I would say yes. But a lot of the drivers for that, at least at the academic level, is a lot of us are, because we're involved in research, we have to get funding, right? And so yes. the funding agencies are realizing that to solve problems, to make headway, the interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary approach is often what it takes. So the funding, um, the grants that they put out, the requests for proposals often, you know, encourage these broad 
um, collaborations. For example, mathematicians can collaborate with, um, you know, uh, chemists to um, create some data science, um, you know, program or something like that. Um, and so, you know, you just, you need biologists and, and computer scientists collaborate all the time with bioinformatics. And so um, it's really important to be open to that. And um, the problem with universities is that we're often siloed in our, in our academic disciplines. Mm -hmm. So things that break those down, I think are really, really good. Um, our university funds some internal grants to try to increase those collaborations to sort of starter grants so that, you know, you can meet together, come up with ideas, get a little preliminary data so that you can then apply for larger proposals, which I think is really a great uh, idea. Well, and I think the other piece that I'm seeing a little bit of is like funders are starting to acknowledge that they need to be collaborating together too in terms of dollars. It's not just only in their purview, but like they're seeing that what they do overlaps with another agency. And even more importantly, something I just saw in the last year, and, and I think SBA has had the Small Business Administration, but they're asking that private industry, especially small businesses, partner with research institutions to utilize either artificial intelligence or bioinformatics, whatever it may be, to really use that as the innovation think tank. And so what was interesting is I was just reading up on this where rather than a small business having to think they need to seek private investors, seed capital, SBA is opening up a different channel of utilizing public money to answer an agency problem for small business or private industry to submit grants to work with a research institute to then innovate and create jobs and industry and, and professions out of that. And I think that's when I saw that, that this last year, I was like, that's pretty significant because that's a huge move in terms of understanding the role that government combined with academia and research institutes combined with um, private industry, like by means all should have been working together and all should be doing things together because some are donors and some are recipients of that money. And if they're all on the same page, that money is just used more effectively. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a long-term thing that I think I've just come about by nature of the pandemic, but I hope we'll, we'll only see more of it. And I really appreciate you kind of sharing what you've been going through, but what the students have been going through as well as in New Orleans, because I, I think a lot of us as listeners want to hear and see is our experience similar, different? How is it similar? How is it different? And what are ways that all of us can collaborate and work together? And the only way we're going to understand that is if we're talking to each other. And even now I find, I think, time is short. So I appreciate your time, Wendy, because I think everyone feels like we don't have enough time in the day. And it's like the most valuable resource, yet super important in terms of connection, but also understanding how we can work more effectively together. So um, just really appreciate your time and sharing and also appreciate your background. And thank you for bringing <laughs> up like Mardi Gras, because I know um, as a child, I went to New Orleans and I love the beignets. And um, once in a while, I'll have this... Um, desire to go get a box and kind of make it at home and such but obviously it never tastes as good it never tastes, the same. <laughs> it never tastes as good but um yeah. love you know the culture and and i'm a foodie so i love food yes. so. <laughs> definitely look yes. forward to hopefully traveling to new orleans when this is done and all of us supporting the community
Right. Well, I've decided when I teach my class on Zoom, I have to have interesting backgrounds because, you know, we can't travel right now. So, you know, we just got to have uh, go do what we can do to keep our spirits up. And private engagement, right? Like if the students, so you can engage the students, so they're not just looking at a blank screen yes. and listening to you, but they're engaging with you. Yes. So thank you very much for taking this time. Sure. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Driving Outcomes. If you'd like to listen to or download other episodes of Driving Outcomes, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast networks. Please also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn as The Mark USA. We hope you'll join us again next week for more conversations with today's leaders who are driving for results and achieving phenomenal business outcomes. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.